looks pretty good. So we can come, you kind of go in the backyard, we'll have food and tables and chairs set up and space for visitation. Uh, if you need to come in the house to use the bathroom, if you provide uh, verifiable fruit proof of vaccination, we might let you in. So I guess I shouldn't joke about that stuff, but sometimes you got to laugh instead of cry. I don't know. <laughs> So last week, we were wrapping up chapter 3 of Peter, and we talked about several things. We talked about being zealots for the good, about being intentional and committed to finding ways that are good, or things that are good, uh, good for the church, good for ourselves, good for our neighbor, good for the community that we live in. And even though we do good, Peter says there are still going to be times that you're going to face suffering. Uh, possibly be called out even and become a target because we are trying to be good and do good. Uh, and we do it, we do our good in the name of Jesus Christ. See, Peter expects that our good behavior, um, our ability to not fear what people normally fear, our, our ability to not retaliate when everyone's reaction is to retaliate, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, when we don't react to the attacks that come to us in a vindictive or vengeful way, uh, that's going to get some people's attention. And so when that, when that happens, when people are beginning to ask questions about our peculiar lifestyle, we just got to own that what we're doing as Christians in this world, it's some weird stuff. It's not the normal thing. And we're going to be talking about that more today. Uh, Peter admonishes us, though, when questions come out regarding your behavior for what you are doing and the way you're living, be prepared. Be ready, he says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so that first word I want to draw your attention to, prepared. And that's important because if we don't prepare, if we don't plan, if we are not intentional, we will not answer well. We will not react well when situations of stress come our way. Um, we got to be prepared. We got to be smart. We got to be wise about this. And then he says to give an answer. Usually giving an answer, it involves our actions, but it also it needs to involve our world, our words, our words, in our, our words in this world. We have to be able to explain to people what we believe, why we do what we do. <clears throat> and we get nervous about this because uh, we think somehow we need to be eloquent. Some of us have a hard time speaking in front of other people. Uh, some of us are... Uh, largely people of very few words. Uh, some of us are people of a few too many words. Uh, why are you laughing, Brenda? <laughs> but we need, Peter's not asking for eloquence. We just, uh, we just need to talk about what God has done in our lives. It doesn't have to be pretty. It can be simple and straightforward. Uh, but we build this up into our minds, uh, something more than it's supposed to be, and we get nervous about it. And we, but preparing, practicing even, 
thinking about what, what are the reasons for the hope that I have. When we spend time focusing on that, we are able to uh, react in different ways where it's like, oh, you know what? I've thought about this. I've prepared for this. And the Lord will show you those moments and you'll know when it's right and you share the reason for the hope that you have. So that, that, that's the content of what we are invited to share. The reason for our hope. It's not a big sermon. It's not these theological points from A to Z. It's your real life. What do you really hope for in your life? I hope to live to a ripe old age. I hope not to die alone. I hope someone will remember something good about me. I hope, I hope, I hope. What are your real hopes? <clears throat> and we need to tie these hopes to Jesus Christ. And these don't need to be churchy answers necessarily for the hope that we have. But what are your real life hopes? And think about how Jesus makes all of those hopes better. He enables those hopes. He creates desire in our hopes. All the ways that we get to discover how Jesus has helped us with everything we've entrusted to him. So there's that old song, I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So some of us know that song. They were singing with me, parking lot people. You're missing out. We were having a real kumbaya moment in the church building here. Uh if we can just be honest about our hopes and intentional about inviting Jesus into that, we get to uh, bring God glory to that. And what that is about is making God look attractive. When we are able to give words and put words to the hope we have in Jesus Christ, that we're able to use those things to make people think, you know what, maybe there is some merit to this whole weird Christian idea. Maybe there is good there that I didn't realize was there. Maybe I missed something when I just brushed right past that and didn't go very deep into exploring faith in Jesus. But now in the fourth chapter, Peter brings us back again to the topic of suffering. So this is another hard sell in this culture that we live in. The idea that we're going to suffer, and sometimes good fruit comes out of the difficulties that we face. Peter says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Sometimes we Christians don't expect that we're going to suffer. Uh, we see suffering as an intrusion to our lives. It's uh, distracting us from what we really want to be doing and worried about, uh, about. But suffering is part of the human experience, and it's part of our Christian experience as well. In fact, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, at some level, it invites suffering. Uh, 
when you take on the name Jesus, that means that you're going to suffer for that in some way at some time. So Peter, he's talking about suffering because of the name of Christ. And in this case, uh, they're living in this hot, the shadow of a hostile culture, a hostile world. Uh, so that included the, the suffering that Christians would face, uh, slander against them for their good behavior, uh, harsh, harsher persecutions that were going to come on them, uh, even sometimes persecutions that will come despite the good things that they are trying to do for the people around them. Uh, but this suffering that Peter's talking about in the fourth chapter, it's, I think, a kind or a nuance of Christian suffering, uh, the way that we suffer because of the lifestyle that we take on for ourselves, including the way people misunderstand us because we live so differently. Uh, the Christian life is, uh, in, in a sense, it is a yoke of uh, uh, commands that we try to live up to. It is uh, something that we have to practice, that we get stronger at. Um, when we decide that we're going to live a different kind of life, uh, that means there are certain things that we don't do. Uh, that means that when we don't do those things, we're trying to build ourselves up and get stronger. <clears throat> and it's not just for the sake of not doing X, Y, or Z. It's for the sake of focusing on Jesus Christ. And so there are certain commands of God that we are trying to live into, but our focus becomes so Christ-centered that the things that we're doing, it's not like we're keeping lists of do's and don'ts. We're just the people that are in love with Jesus. And when we get that from the heart, it reflects in the way we live and the behavior that we have. So I think the suffering that Peter is talking about is the suffering uh, we undergo in becoming strong to resist sin. Do you resist temptation when it comes to you? Or do you give in to temptation? So like someone who's going to run a marathon, they have to suffer and undergo a kind of training to get strong enough to be able to accomplish the task that they want to accomplish in order to finish that race. A marathon is not a casual distance that you just, I decide one morning I want to go run a marathon and I get out of bed and I just run and do it. Uh, the suffering that we take on uh, in, in a Christian life of discipline, it can be related to maybe like a boxer. I, my wife hates boxing, but a boxer has to go through a training regiment to become strong enough to have a chance of winning a fight against an opponent who's also been training and also trying their hardest to, to learn a skill tough enough. Um, this is the suffering and discipline and training that a soldier has to go through in order to be prepared for an enemy who could attack, for orders that need to be carried out without training, without discipline. You know, and that discipline, sometimes that's a kind of suffering. It's uncomfortable to become strong in Christ sometimes. But we are to make up our mind that we're going to suffer 
And as we learn to fight against human evil desires, when we are intentional about it, when we have a plan about that, uh, we become tough and we're able to withstand temptation. Uh, Christians must live a purer lifestyle than people who have no faith in Jesus Christ. I think that goes without saying. Um, And in the word art of Peter, when he says, arm yourselves, that word art is literally military language that Peter is using. Take up arms, that means. We are armed with the attitude of Jesus. The power of Jesus, the power of Jesus was that he was so God in love, so infatuated and in love with his heavenly, not infatuated, focused on his heavenly father, that he was never, never even one time gave in to temptation when it came his way. And instead, what Jesus Christ was able to do and why he is our ultimate example of what we are to strive for and try to become through all eternity is a man who lived his life selflessly for others, who poured out his life as a sacrifice. We celebrate that when we share communion together. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. See, apart from God and apart from the guardrails of the commands of God, our human desires if it's all about us, our desires become twisted. They become destructive. They destroy ourselves. We destroy ourselves. We destroy people around us. Um, our desires, they begin to harm others. Uh, I harm others because I'm so infatuated with my own comfort and my own pleasure. But those who have suffered because of their faith, these are the same people who have learned to renounce sinful behavior. Uh, You become so God-focused that it's just everything becomes about Jesus the deeper you go in the spiritual life. And the Holy Spirit helps us in that. Uh, You think... And you know what? When you become so Jesus in love, your desires change. And you stop focusing on and hoping on evil human desires. You just think, I don't even want this anymore. My desires have changed. I'm done with that garbage because I'm so, my attention is elsewhere. It's on Jesus himself. You know, some of us have been through some nasty stuff through the years. And we've learned firsthand just how fleeting, how destructive, and how painful, and just how gross sin is. And we get to the point where we just say, you know what, I don't want that anymore. I don't don't want that garbage anymore. I'm done with that. So keep in mind that Peter is addressing a largely Gentile audience. 
And before Jesus, these people, before they became Christians, these people, the culture they were in, they were doing some nasty stuff. And just so there's no doubt about it, Peter calls out some of these evil human desires so that they can't stay hidden, so there's no ambiguity about it. He draws a harder line for us. Peter gives us an entire vice list that we need to understand. So he says this, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. All of those things were tied to idolatry in that culture of the ancient Romans, uh, ancient Greek, Greco-Roman culture. Uh, First off, debauchery. It's not a term we usually use. Uh, Debauchery isn't focused on one particular action, but debauchery is fundamentally a lack of self-restraint. So you can... uh, just give up practicing self-control in whatever way that you don't say no anymore. You don't limit yourselves anymore. Whatever that desire is, I'm just going to feed it until I want no more or until I'm dead and it destroys me. So you become a slave to that vice, basically, in debauchery. Uh, You harm yourself and others in your process of crashing and burning. So a person can be debauched with sex, debauched with drugs, alcohol, just food, uh, the way you eat and your habits around eating, you can be debauched in that. See, debauchery is a kind of insensitivity and hard-heartedness that comes when a person is alienated from God, and they just don't care anymore. They don't care anymore. The second word Peter, on Peter's lists is lust, and referring to giving into lustful desires. And then drunkenness and orgies, they often went hand in hand in these festivals of Dionysus, a, a, a Greek god, or the Roman counterpart, I forget what his name is, uh, where they would just drink excessively, excessive amounts of undiluted wine. And just, and all of this relates to the idolatry that they were practicing. It's all about uh, the t- from the temple prostitutions and the sacrifices that they're making. It was all just tied together in this cycle of brokenness, and it destroyed lives. And that's why Peter uses that modifying word, detestable, detestable. This is what the Gentile culture of that time was swimming in, some nasty stuff. And anyone who was trying to live differently, who was trying to not do those things, well, frankly, people just viewed them as crazy. They're crazy. So let me just say, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the Christian sexual ethic um, I'll try to keep it PG-13 with all of, all of this, but I, I feel a need to say a word or two about this because in our silence, other voices speak. And most of us get our idea of, ideas of sexuality from, from places that are horrible sources of information, 
horrible examples to follow. And so to start with, I would just say the Christian sexual ethic, it is high and it is difficult. And we're struggling to live up to it sometimes. And the culture of our day says that, you know what? The, the sexuality that you Christians are talking about, it's impossible. And so I've heard words to describe uh, Christian sexual practice as antiquated, prejudiced, unhealthy, unrealistic, repressive, or just outright impossible. Outright impossible. See, the biblical sexual ethic is that if you are single, you are celibate. And there's no dirtier word uh, to a sensualistic culture than the word celibacy. Uh, There's not even the idea that there could be blessings in that lifestyle or that there could be good that came out of that. Uh, The only sex that is sanctioned and celebrated in the Bible is heterosexual sex between one man and one woman and only in a covenant of marriage. And further, that covenant of marriage is meant to last for your entire life. So when people in the world hear that, it sounds like crazy talk. Even some of us who have been a part of the church for a long time just think, eh, that's not even realistic. That's not even, well, I know it says that, but you see, if your life is about self-fulfillment, is about pleasure, comfort, self-actualization, the Christian sexual ethic, it just seems like crazy talk. But what if the point of your life is not about self-actualization? What, uh, what if the point of your life is not about just doing whatever makes you happy, whatever you determine happy to be at that moment? What if my life is meant to be more than just all about me? What if I actually am meant to become a priest or a priestess in a royal priesthood? What if I'm supposed to be set apart as belonging to God and holy to Him? What if instead of drowning in my own narcissism, What if I'm actually supposed to become a living sacrifice? Two things I want to say. First, Peter's not just giving us a list of things to beat us up and make people feel bad about themselves. Peter knows it really is possible to live a life that is so so God-focused, so self-controlled, and so free that we just get to be a different kind of people. There is, there is freedom in following and keeping the commands of God. And it seems crazy. And it seems crazy to this world. But Peter knows that it's possible. Peter knows that it's possible. And that's why he is one of the reasons he and other New Testament writers bring this up and address this. Second, This is not Calvin just sitting up here yelling at you about how bad you are or how gross you are. Like, I don't know who's, how gross some of you are or whatever. And I'm not up here just yelling at you. Just try harder. Just try harder. Go lift up yourself by your bootstraps. 
Come on, man, get your act together. Don't you know that? But we also have to say, God sets the standards. God gets to determine what commands he wants us to follow. And those standards are high. And for, for years of my life, I just thought that God's way, basically, when it comes to sexuality, I just thought it's impossible. So, like in the Sermon on the Mount, when I heard these words from Jesus, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, those words haunted me, and those words caused me a lot of shame, and in my shame, I hid a part of me, and I just pretended like lustful temptations were not real. We all have certain vice or sin that we have a weakness toward. For me, it was lust. So in my life, I just adopted a kind of fake it till you make it strategy. And my teaching on this with people is you just need to try harder, all the while knowing that just trying harder doesn't work. It's not working. But in the end, as hard as God's way may be, it is the easier way. You see, we all talk about the cost of discipleship, but not very many people are talking about the cost of non-discipleship, the cost of not even trying, the cost of just giving in and living a debauched lifestyle. In the end, that cost is way higher See, in the end, God's way is always better. It's always better. And by the way, the best lovers in the world, they're Christians. Well, how in the world would you know that, Calvin? Because I've learned something about the way that love works. Our love and our sexual practice. It's about a whole lot more than body parts or plumbing or performance. Uh, and we don't talk about this often. Maybe we should talk about it in some settings more, uh, but in wise ways too. We live a sexuality that doesn't advertise anything. We don't compare. Our marriage relationships are unique for each couple to explore and to discover. Christian sexuality actually grows intimacy. Uh, it is safe for families and children. And I'm not trying to be crude, but it's not the devil who created the orgasm. God gave us bodies that were capable of that. 
The devil has just worked with our own selfishness and our own corrupted hearts to corrupt the gift of God and the good things that he gives us. To take something as beautiful and as intimate and as private as that and to turn it something that was meant to be self-giving and to turn it around to be something that is selfish and destroys. You see, corrupted sex is about using, it's about discarding, about having no thought of the well-being or blessing of another person. Sex becomes a commodity that can be bought or sold and paid for, can be used, can be consumed. And in this world, when so-and-so, whoever so-and-so is, ceases to please me, when the fire cools, people will say, I'm sorry, this just isn't working for me anymore. We discard people for, I discard this one for, and we use terms like, someone who really understands me, someone who really gets me. See, Peter's vice list points out different ways that we're, tr- we're tempted to think you know what? God is holding out on me. God is refusing to give me the goodies from heaven. And so I need to take charge of this myself. See, vice is always about ways that we are trying to make ourselves into our own gods. I call my own shots. And it's always a war. It is always a war to try to live my life like it's not all about me. That's a war. So when Peter, in his word art, he uses language like this, be prepared. When he uses language like arm yourself, he's talking about planning. Be prepared so much and so determined in your mind that, you know what? I'm ready to suffer a little bit for living the commands of God. I'm ready to get tough and get serious about this. He's talking about intentionality. He's talking about strategy. So the question you have to ask is this for any kind of area of life. Uh, uh, But this list, uh, a lot of it's tied to sexuality that Peter gives us. Do you have a strategy when it comes to that? As a single person, do you have a strategy? As a married person, do you have a strategy? So I want to recommend a couple different resources that just are helpful because no no one's coming to me and talking about this stuff. We hide this. I know it exists. The Holy Spirit's talked to me about this. I know it's in this room. But there's maybe a footstep that you can take on your own, and it's going to lead to other things. Because real change is possible. Real freedom and living a life in the freedom of Christ, it's possible. Freedom from addiction, freedom from living in debauchery, 
It's possible, and it's beautiful, and it's glorious. So this first organization is called Triple uh, X Church, xxxchurch.com, if you want to look them up. And uh, they're just, they have small groups, they have really good materials. Explore this website. If you're not willing to come talk to your own preacher for whatever reason, well, if you're a woman, there are godly women that you need to talk to. If you're a guy, come talk to me. But if you're not able to do that, take this step, triplexchurch.com, and it'll start you on a journey to ask questions. As you started on your 10-day journey, this comes on your cell phone, a regular encouragement. Some of us know what it's like to use our cell phones for surfing porn and doing evil things. You have to ask yourself questions. Brutal honesty. Do you really want this? Do you want sexual integrity? Do you want freedom in this area of your life? Honestly, do you want to be done with porn or massage parlors or strip clubs or whatever it is that you're struggling with? You're going to need help. You're going to need help. This might be a good way to start. Another one that I would recommend, and we, we feel like we've got, we've got to hide this stuff and we've got to fake it and we just shove that away. I'll deal with this, but... You know, the church, we're not supposed to be museums of the perfect picture of holiness. We have that in Jesus Christ. This is a hospital where sick people come to get better and to find healing. And that's what we need to be for each other, is a place for healing. And you got to make a plan. You got to have a strategy. Or you will waste years of your life enslaved to filth. The second resource I would uh, recommend is Celebrate Recovery. It's a Christ-centered 12-step program for anyone struggling with a hurt, pain, or addiction of any kind. So people will go to Celebrate Recovery with sexual addiction issues, a porn habit to break, or whatever it is. They'll come for drugs or alcohol or food, uh, dealing with the hang-ups of abuse that you've suffered in your past. And uh, it becomes a small group fellowship of other broken people who are looking to Jesus Christ for healing. And there, are, there is power in this program as well. And I've done some stuff with Celebrate Recovery, and I highly recommend that. All I'm saying is you've got to have a plan. There are resources available to us. We have to be wise, and we've got to learn how to fight. Because we've been called to become a peculiar kind of people that are so in love with Jesus Christ that we just bring healing and goodness to all the situations around us. You know, to be honest with you, the thing that makes me sad about our church is not the thought that some of you might have sin that you're hiding. That's not what makes me sad. The thought that makes me sad in this church 
is the people that think they have to hide it and never talk about it and keep it hidden away. And until we can become honest and a fellowship of real healing in the name of Jesus Christ, we're just going to be limping along. But we've got to have a plan, and we have to be prepared. Prepared to give an answer for the hope we have, armed with the idea that when my life becomes about Jesus, I may have to suffer a little bit with a little skin in the game. And then the pleasure and the comfort that God provides, it's always better. It's always better. But real freedom is, is available to us in Jesus Christ. So as we begin to live honestly, a different kind of life than people around us in this world. Peter says this, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So people will look at our lifestyle and they think that's repressive, that's barbaric, that's whatever the adjectives are that they're piling on there and the story they're telling themselves. But when we do it right, when we do it God's way, it, it's beautiful. BP, you can come on up here. I'm wrapping up. As we begin to have greater and greater purity, greater and greater holiness, greater and greater humility, greater and greater love, our lives will begin to change to the point that people around us notice that we are clearly behaving in different ways. Our lifestyle is clearly something very different. And they're going to react. And sometimes it's going to be to slander and heap abuse. That's okay. We just keep our focus on Jesus. We just keep loving him. We leave it to God to take care of that. But there is going to be a judgment. That's another very unpopular thing to talk about in our culture. But only God can give us justice. And there can't be justice without judgment. But you know the saving grace for us is the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us from all of our brokenness. The grace of God can undo you, it can clean you, it can change you. So take a look at those resources, triplexchurch.com if you like, or celebrate recovery. And if that leads to another journey, and if there comes a time where you need to involve me as your brother, a fellow sinner, feel free to do that. Uh, or find a godly uh, a woman in this church, the ones that are part of our prayer team, I would recommend as a starting point maybe. Uh, sorry to put you ladies on the spot. But we need to become a hospital for the healing work that is available to us in Jesus. And it may seem strange, and it's out of step with anything this world offers, but those of us who've been doing this for a while, you realize how beautiful it is and how real change is possible. It is possible in Jesus Christ. So uh, whatever your needs are, if you want to put the Lord in a baptism, if you want the prayers of this church, if you want to come talk to me about that, 
I'm going to be up here, and uh, you can come up and share those things with me while we stand and sing together. Have you a heart that's weary, tending a load of care? Are you a soul that's seeking?